Last week, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, uh, 6, excuse me, we focused upon the gospel. Um, the majority of us in this room have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those that, certainly the message was for those that have not. But as we learned last week, the message was also for those that have. Not only is the gospel something, it's not just something we accept. The gospel is something that we live. We live it on a daily basis. But, but even more than what we, we live, we, we learn that the gospel is something we share. That the more you hear the gospel, the greater your capacity will be to share it with others as well. Now, if you have a testimony of salvation, then you can share the gospel. The gospel is not um, something that is a rigid expectation. Uh, you don't have to have certain verses that you tell them. The gospel is um, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we believe on the name of Christ to be saved, that He died, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you've accepted Christ, then you know how to share the gospel because you can at least give your testimony. This week, Paul continues. He continues talking uh, about this context of the gospel. You know, it's not uncommon for us as believers to read the Bible, and we talked about it in Sunday school, impose upon the characters within the Bible a greater degree of, of righteousness or a greater degree of unrighteousness than really they deserve. We think of Israel. And as you read the Old Testament, perhaps you're reading through the book of Judges, and as you read through the book of Judges and you see that cycle of apostasy where Israel keeps falling into sin and then they get right with God and, and they're living according to God's word for a few years and then they fall into sin again. And we say, why can't they just figure it out? And we oppose, impose upon them such a great level of unrighteousness only to be reminded as you look at your own life that you know you do that as well, don't you? That you have seasons of sin, that there are times where your faith is not as strong as it ought to be, that there are times where you have failed to live as God would have you to live. Likewise, sometimes we look at men like Moses or Elijah or Paul or Peter and we can impose upon them almost superhuman status, can't we, in our minds? Where it's, it's as if these men had um, something very special where they, they were something greater, almost um, something more, more spiritual than the rest of us. When in fact, these were regular men. They had trials and flaws and temptations. We read in the Bible of Moses um, getting angry at Israel. Moses rebelling against God's word as he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. We read in Scripture of Peter having to be rebuked by Paul for the way he treated the Gentiles. We read about that in the book of Galatians. Of course, we read about Elijah and his discouragement after the Mount Carmel experience and he flees and asks the Lord to take his life because he's the only one and the Lord has to rebuke him and say, not so. There's several thousand who have not bent the knee to the um, prophets of Baal and to Baal. Now, don't get me wrong. These great men were indeed men worth looking up to. They were special in a way, but they were not special because they had some sort of leg up or, or they were somehow less sinful than the rest of us. 
They were special because they had hearts of humility and they were yielded to the Lord. And because of their willingness and humility and yieldedness, God was able to use them in a special way, a particular way. And what I'd like us to consider today as we read verses 7 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15 is that the men and women that we look at in the Bible as tremendous examples and as tremendous role models had no greater opportunity than you do to, we might say, be something for God. The difference is whether or not we are willing and yielded to be used as they were. Whether or not you will take what you have been given and place it on the altar for God to do with whatever He chooses. See, because at the end of the day, any spiritual accomplishment that we have achieved, when you stand before the Lord in glory, any spiritual accomplishment that would have been done was no more and is no more or no less than the grace of God poured out upon your life. It is the grace of God that brings you to a place where you can even use the things that you have for Him. And then any degree to which that use is realized is only through the grace of God. And that's what we're going to learn about today. We're going to learn some important lessons about the grace of God. When we get to heaven, anything of redeeming value done in this life will be by right the work of Jesus Christ in us so that there will be no glory and no value in our lives except that which Christ did in us and through us. Let me give you an illustration here. My wife just finished tiling our kitchen and our entryway. And it's got a nice uh, tan neutral tile and then there's, there's a, a blue tile mosaic that's quite pervasive throughout the entire, entire kitchen and hallway area. Now, That tile being completed or mostly completed, I don't look at the wet saw that she used to cut the tiles and say, wow, wet saw, you really did a good job. Look at, look at how good of a job that wet saw did on this floor. I don't give time and effort commending the grout or the mortar or the underlayment that was used because all of those things were simply tools in the hand of someone skillful to bring about something that is proper and beautiful. In much the same way, you and I are tools. We are tools in the hand of God to do His work. We do our best through righteous living, focused learning to become the best tool we can be for God. We use our natural talents to glorify God's name, but God doesn't always use the best tool for any given job. He uses the most willing and most available tool. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you are unwilling to place that talent in the hand of God, to place that talent at Jesus' feet, He will gladly use a perhaps less talented but more willing tool. You can be a smart person, very intelligent, but if you don't submit your intelligence to the will of God and to the truth of God's Word, He will gladly use someone less intelligent but more yielded to do His work. In other words, God doesn't need you, but He does want to use you. 
And He wants to reward you for it. But God will only use you to the degree to which you make yourself usable and the degree to which you are willing. So my desire with our time together today is threefold. First, I want to encourage you to be a yielded tool for God, to be willing to yield yourself to God. Then second, I want to encourage you to do one step better than just being a yielded tool and to become a good tool for God. Don't be a dull tool. Don't be an unwieldy tool. Be a sharp tool. Be a ready tool. Be, a, be the best tool for the job. And then finally, I want to remind you that, that regardless of, of the degree to which you yield yourself, it is still indeed up to God how He uses you. And so we need to not just yield the fact that we are usable to God, but how He chooses to use us. So that's what we'll talk about today, and we'll do so through 1 Corinthians 15, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's only five verses, so please follow along with me as I read. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. We pick up right in the middle of context today. I don't normally like doing this, but uh, we really do. We pick up with uh, a verse that begins with an and and, and is excessively um, dependent upon the context of what we spoke of last week. And last time we were together, as we mentioned, we focused upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. An important part of Paul's message in regard to the gospel, and we'll see this as Paul's reason for even bringing the gospel up as we continue through uh, the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, what, what his message was in regard to the gospel was to validate the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because there was a debate in the church regarding whether or not there was a resurrection and if it really mattered. So there were those in the church who had gotten so far outside of orthodox teaching of the apostles that they were literally denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there was a debate in the church. You'd say, wow, how far must this church have gone to where there was a, 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 a legitimate debate as to whether or not Jesus had been re resurrected from the dead? But there had been. And that is the direction that Paul is going here. So Paul gave the gospel, and he, as an integral part of this gospel message, asserted that Jesus is risen from the dead and spends several verses giving the names and identification of those who have seen the risen Lord. And recall last time he began by stating that Jesus was seen of Cephas, that, that's Peter, and then the twelve. Now notice Paul does not include himself in the twelve here. He says the twelve, and he'll later speak of himself. There's a debate in Christianity as to whether Paul was the one who became the twelfth disciple after Judas was killed. Well, he, he, he was not. Acts chapter 1 tells us that a man named Mattathias was um, elected by the other eleven to take that position as the twelfth apostle. And we can see very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 proof that Paul did not regard himself as one of the twelve. He calls them the twelve, and he says, me as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. 
And then he says that, that Jesus was seen of over 500 disciples at once. That would have been Jesus promising to his 12 that when he died and rose again, that he would go to Galilee and that they would see him in Galilee. And so many of the disciples came together in Galilee to see the risen Lord, over 500 of them, many of whom, Paul says, are still alive today. Some have died, but many are still alive. And that brings us to where we are today as Paul continues to list the witnesses, the witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And he says the next witness he gives after that, he was seen of James. He lists James. Now, James was the brother of Jesus. And by this point in history, as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he was the head elder, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. This is the same James that wrote the book of James, Jesus's half-brother and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This would have been a very valid source. You think of what we've talked about in 1 Corinthians so far, and we know that there was a large contingency of Jewish Christians there. Much of what Paul is having to state is the contention between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Things, eating meat sacrificed unto idols, and, and I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of, I am of Cephas, and all of these arguments, all kind of directed around the, the differences that would have been um, in the Jewish believers and the, the uh, Gentile believers that were coming together in this church. And Paul speaking of how we're all members of the same body, that there's none that are better than the others. The, the proliferation of the, the gift of tongues, which we know was a gift specifically designed to reach unbelieving Jews. All of that tells us there was a great number of Jewish believers and Jews in Corinth. So Paul using James here, invoking both Cephas, the Twelve, and James as, as witnesses to this, would have had, had a lot of credibility. We see James in his official capacity in Acts chapter 15. That's where Paul goes back to the church to defend his methods of evangelization because there have been rumors that he was um, telling the Gentiles that they didn't have to abstain from fornication and abstain from things eaten unto uh, things sacrificed unto idols and blood and those sorts of things. So Paul went to defend himself and, and it was before James and the elders at Jerusalem that he defended himself. So James is what we might call a credible source that Paul is listing here. He then uh, lists that, that Jesus had been seen of all the apostles. Well, pastor, you already said that he'd been seen of the twelve. So why, why is he relisting them? Well, he's not. There were more apostles than just the twelve. We, we know of the twelve, and the twelve had a very unique ministry. The 12 being a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was quite regular when councils were brought together that there would be 12 men on that council. And so there was a group of 12, we call them a subset of the apostles, that were called by God specifically to go to Israel and to be representatives of God to the nation of Israel. And 12 would have been a very acceptable number for the Jews as they see a representative body. But then we also know that Paul calls himself an apostle. And Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts 14.14. 14. So while the ministry of the twelve was unique, and indeed the ministry of the apostle was unique, they are not one and the same. There were at least two more apostles than the twelve, at least Paul and Barnabas, and quite possibly more than just those fourteen, as we read in the book of Acts. 
So Paul says he was seen of Cephas. He was seen of the twelve. He was seen of over 500 at one time. He was seen of James. He was seen of all the apostles because that was qualification for an apostle. And then finally he says, and this is a bit redundant, he says he, he was seen of me also in verse 8. Seen of me also as one born out of due time. We find the account of this, in part at least, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Galatians 1, 16, 17 says, Paul speaking, uh, as he says that God chose to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. And he says when, when he was confronted with the reality of God's word, when he was confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he says, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went unto Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So we see that, that he went to Arabia after his conversion and then to Damascus. And it would seem that, well, we know that he did not go up to Jerusalem for three years. It was three years after his conversion that he met with the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul says that in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, four verses earlier, Paul says that he was not taught by man, but he was taught by Christ himself. Then he gives the testimony of going into Arabia and then back into Damascus. And for, th- for three years, he was there before um, he conferred with flesh and blood, that being James and the other apostles. So if we put all of this together in our minds, Paul is saved. Of course, we know that he ends up in Damascus. After uh, his, his brief stint in Damascus, he goes to Arabia, where church tradition would tell you that he spent three years in Arabia being taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly how long he was in Arabia, that being the desert. Um, but what we do know is that during that time that he was in the desert, he was taught by Christ himself. That's what Paul says. That he was not taught the gospel by uh, just a man. He was taught the gospel by Jesus Christ himself. He has seen the risen Lord. He was taught by the risen Lord. And that's why we believe it, because of Galatians chapter 1. And then after three years, he ended up in um, Jerusalem before the apostles. Now, as we continue to consider this in verse 8, Paul didn't see himself as, as a very um, good source here. In regard to his apostleship, he likens himself to one being born out of due time, he says in verse 8. He says, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. He's speaking of his, his salvation as well as his apostleship here, that, that he sees himself as one born out of due time. What does that mean, though? What does it mean being born out of good, due time? Well, if you, if you look at the word in the Greek, um, it, it literally means um, to an untimely birth. You would also see next to it a miscarriage. An untimely birth or a miscarriage. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. However, it is used once in the, Old, in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint or the LXX. And in the Septuagint, it's used in Job 3.16, where Job states this. I'll read verse 11 and then verse 16 for context. Job said in Job 3.11, Why died I not in the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? 
And then in verse 16, he says, or as a hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. So it seems uh, from the context that what Job is saying here is, at first he says, why, why did I not die in the womb? Why, why was I not a miscarriage? And then he says, why didn't I die as I came out? Why was I not like the premature children that are born so young that they simply can't live because they're not developed enough yet? Why didn't I die? Now we know in Job's circumstances, the struggles and the, and the trials he was going through brought him to this place of self-pity. God will correct him on that. I'm not encouraging you to have the same attitude. Nor am I saying that Paul says that, he was, that his salvation was a mistake. But what we do understand is this idea of a child being born um, out of due time, untimely, uh, is the idea of, of something unnatural, something unexpected, something that is not according to the normal circumstances that would bring about a birth. That's what this word means. And as Paul is using this word, he says that his salvation was outside of the normal circumstances, the normal way that one would expect salvation to occur. That's what he's saying here. That he was born out of due time. He wasn't a stillborn Christian. He wasn't a premature Christian. He was simply a Christian that was born again outside of the normal circumstances that would bring about a typical salvation experience. In other words, the way it happened in Paul's case was not normal. It is not normal that Jesus Christ appears physically and audibly and blinds a person and says, you will be my servant. It's not normal for this, this is not what we should say, okay, this is what I'm looking for in my salvation experience. If it doesn't happen this way, then it didn't happen right. Because Paul says he was one born as out of due time in, an, in, a, in a much less natural means by which his salvation came about. It was still by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, just under different circumstances. And he continues talking about why he believes he was a very unique salvation experience in verse 9. And he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It was the heavenly unnatural circumstances that were needed in Paul's case to bring him to the truth that caused Paul to feel as though he was the least of the apostles. Within the context, what Paul means here is that in, in dignity, in personal character, he saw himself as ranking below the lowest of the low, the least qualified, the most unworthy of the position that he had been given as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he attributed this to the reality that he had been a persecutor of the church of God. Because he had persecuted the church of God, he says, I really am not, I am the least worthy. If, if, if anyone is unworthy if, if everyone is unworthy, if you were to rank unworthiness, I'm at the very, very most unworthy in that ranking. I'm at the bottom of the list. I'm the last person that anyone would say he should be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church of God because I was there persecuting the church of God. Now, we all know that mankind has a, a capacity for evil. We all know that you or I in reality have within us the capacity for great evil, do we not? The scriptures tell us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you have a heart? 
Well, certainly you do. Uh, spiritually speaking, you have a soul. You have a personality. You have a will. You have the, uh, a sin nature. You have the capacity for evil. We think back to World War II and the millions of Germans who wholly sold themselves out to Hitler and his scheme. The scores of soldiers, faithful Germans, good soldiers who mercilessly slaughtered millions, millions of Jews as well as um, political dissidents, anyone that was on their blacklist. These were what we might call normal people. Normal people who did these atrocities. And this reminds us that even the most normal man has an amazing capacity to convince himself of the virtues of immoral deeds. You and I have an amazing capacity to justify our sin. And we can be led through deceit into great sin, oftentimes led full knowingly into great sin. So we know we have the capacity for evil. But you know, many of us, to, to, to a large degree, have not realized our capacity. Now, there, there are some in this room who have done more wrong than others have done wrong. But by and large, our culture, our society, our circumstances have brought us to the point where, where we, we have not realized the tremendous capacity that we have for evil. And then we got saved, and of course, that capacity was unplugged. I mean, we can still do it, but we don't have to anymore. But Paul... Place yourself into Paul's shoes for a moment. Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of the Pharisees, sat under the teaching the feet of Gamaliel, zealous over the law. And at the time that he was converted on the road to Damascus, do you remember why he was going to Damascus? He was going there to root out some Christians he'd heard of. See, he became the point of of the Jewish spear against the Christianity movement, against these Nazarenes, these followers of Jesus. He was standing there watching the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death. It's his consent. It might have even been his idea. He sold himself wholly to kill Christians. That was what he did. That was his good work for God. And as Paul is writing about those that had seen the risen Lord and the tremendous blessings that, that, that um, these men have to be used of God as apostles, and he's listing all of these men who have been blessed by seeing the risen Lord, he says, oh, and by the way, I've been blessed with that too, although I really don't know why. And he's thinking back to who knows how many Christians he had killed. He persecuted the church of God and he says, I don't know why God chose to use me. It didn't make sense to him that God chose to use him. And in any reasonably, reasonable man's mind, there's no reason why he should have been used. And that's our point. That's where we're going with this. Paul had been that ruthless killer of God's people. Perhaps he was even thinking of Stephen as he wrote those words, as Stephen declared the truth and paid for it with his life. And that brings us to verse 10. See, because Paul was an apostle, wasn't he? 
How was it that Paul, who didn't consider himself worthy, still found the means by which to be used of God? How was it Paul, this man who had persecuted the church of God, how is it that he became one of God's greatest servants for an age? Verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What Paul tells us is that his service to God has nothing to do with his worthiness or even his capability. Paul did not do what he did because he felt qualified. I was talking to a young man, a Marine. Uh, my wife and I were, were on a, a weekend vacation when, when we were down. Uh, I was in seminary and we were working at the school. And we, we took a weekend off. We went to a hotel and there were these Marines that were there for the weekend. And these kids, they, they looked like they were 12. They were 18. Um, I'm assuming. <laughs> they, they weren't much older than 18. But um, um, they were down at the hot tub almost the whole time we were there. And, and, and the first time we went, we, we were there just chatting and they came and of course started splashing and they were all quite drunk and and uh, and such, and it was an interesting time. But you know, after that, I, I met this one kid, and I wanted to follow up with him. So we we made it a point to be down there anytime they were there. Had to wait until he sobered up a little before I could actually talk to him. But uh, so we went down there the next day, and we were chatting with him, and and he he had just joined the Marines, of course, and and um, I told him I was a, I was, was training to be a pastor, and, and he said, oh, I was thinking about doing that said, that was my choice. I was either going to join the Marines or become a pastor. And a youth pastor, of course, is what he wanted to be because it's, it's all fun and games, right? But um, he told me that. And there's a little part of me that, that um, just wept over that because that, that's, that's how a lot of people think of the pastorate. Oh, I can do that. I have a capacity for that. I want that. The, the same way you might become a police officer because you want to help people or you might become a, a doctor because you want to help people. Oh, I want to become a pastor because I, that's something I feel I can do. But you know, that's not really how ministry works. It's not how it ought to work. And Paul here, he, he's not citing that he became a minister of, of God because he looked and he said, oh, you know what? I can really corner this market. I'm smarter than these fishermen from Galilee. I've got, I've got a much better foundation than Peter. And I mean, these, these are just... These people don't, don't even really know theology. I've, I've been memorizing the Torah since I was a child. These people would have nothing on me. I can do this job and I can do it better than them. So I'm going to become an apostle. Didn't work that way. Paul didn't become an apostle because he felt qualified. Paul didn't go around the world preaching the gospel because it's what he wanted to do. He didn't sit there and say, Derby, Lystra, they're going to hate me. They're going to beat me. They're going to stone me. They're going to leave me for dead outside the city. That sounds like a good job. I'm going to go to the next town and I'm going to be chased out of that town because they're going to hate me. This is what I want to do for a living. I want to be run out of every town in the Roman Empire. That sounds great. Paul didn't do that. This was not what Paul had spent his entire life working toward in a physical, material, mental capacity. Paul was what he was, he says, because of the grace of God that was upon his life. Now, what is grace? 
simply defined, grace is God's unmerited favor. Him giving us something that we do not deserve. Paul says that God has favored him with a ministry and a capacity which his past sins should never have allowed him to have. He was a persecutor of the church of God. There's no reason why God should have looked down on this man who was killing God's servants and say, I want that man to become a choice servant of mine. And I am going to not just call him, but then I am going to enable him to do it. But that's exactly what Paul says God did. And Paul recognized something very important. And I'd like you to to listen to this closely. Paul did not live out his days in ministry thinking that he was God's gift to the Gentiles. He lived out his days of ministry recognizing that his ministry to the Gentiles was God's undeserved gift to him. Okay? Paul did not see himself as a gift to the Gentiles to bring them to Christ. Paul saw his ministry to the Gentiles as a gift from God to him undeserved. Every time he was beaten and thrown out of the city, he saw it as God's gift to him. Every time he was cast in prison, it was God's gift to him. And every time someone came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and a church began and cities were turned upside down for the, for the knowledge of God or through the knowledge of God, Paul did not say, look what I did. Paul said, look what God has done through me. I was a tool that God chose to use. Because if God had not chosen to use Paul, or if Paul had said no, God would have used someone else to do the work. And because of this mindset, Paul tells us he was determined that God's goodness to him would not be found wanting, would not be in vain, would not be empty. So he worked and he toiled, and he labored to ensure that he was the very best tool he could possibly be for God. If God is going to be so good as to give me this ministry, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to work the hardest at it. I'm going to become everything that I can be so that God is maximum blessed and glorified through my labor. So he worked harder than everyone. He was proverbially the first to get up and the last to go to bed. The first to arrive and the last to leave. He was that guy as he evangelized the world. He suffered shame and contempt, physical injury, not because he wanted to, but because he was determined that the grace of God that had been given to him and placed him in the ministry at that time would not have been wasted on him. There was something else that Paul realized. Paul said, I labored, I worked hard. He knew how to do that. He'd already been doing that for a good portion of his life. He says, but there's something I realized, church at Corinth, as I began, as I recognized God's grace and said, this grace will not be wasted. I'm going to labor harder than anybody to make sure that this grace is not in vain. He says, but then there's something I realized as I began to labor. He realized... that there's nothing that he could do, there's no amount of labor that he could put in, no ounce of effort that he could put into his ministry, every ounce of his effort, every ministerial accomplishment, no matter how small or how great, was nothing more or less than the manifestation of God's grace. God's grace was what brought him to that point, and then as he labored to get to the next point, he realized that it was God's grace that got him there too. God's grace brought him, God's grace kept him, God's grace sustained him. 
God's grace enabled him. Every little ounce of effort, if it had any spiritual effect at all, Paul says, I know why. It's because of God's grace. It's God's grace. Even following Paul's call, every convert, every church, every speaking opportunity was simply another expression of God's unmerited favor upon his life. It was God's grace that called him, so he determined to be worthy of that grace through hard work, through complete devotion, only to realize in the end that even all of that hard work and complete devotion were fruitless unless the continued grace of God was upon his efforts. And it was. And then Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, so you believed. The final verse will continue... Uh, We'll, we'll, this will be the final verse we consider before we, we finish for today and apply. And he brings his mind back to this gospel that he's preaching. He says, I preach the gospel unto you. You receive this gospel. This is the gospel. These are the ones that saw the gospel. I'm not worthy to be a, mem- uh, a, a apostle of the gospel, but I was made an apostle of the gospel, so I worked hard, realizing that it's God's grace from beginning to end in my life that gets me there. But regardless of whether it was I that preached the gospel to you or they, the other apostles that preached the gospel to you, it really doesn't matter as long as it's been preached and you've believed because I am just a tool. And the other apostles are just tools as well. It doesn't matter if you got saved under my ministry or the ministry next door. What matters is that you got saved because we're all tools in the Master's hand. The question is, how good of a tool are we? And as we apply today, I want to bring us back to those three points I I spoke of at the beginning. We're going to see three things as we apply. Number one, God's grace is bigger than your mistakes. Number two, God's grace is worthy of your deepest efforts. And third and finally, God's grace is not at the mercy of your efforts. It's worthy of your efforts, but it's not at the mercy of your efforts. I don't know all of the things that you have done in your past. I don't know all of your failures. I don't know what sins have defined you in years gone by. I don't know if it was alcohol or drug use or deceitful living or unfaithfulness or promiscuity or stealing or even murder. I don't know. We all have things in our past that we've done wrong. They were terrible. We were servants of... of ourselves, of the world, of Satan, not of God. We've all done things that are terrible, that would seek to define us as one who is unredeemable or unusable by God or unworthy of God's grace and God's mercy. And I, I don't know what has defined you in your past. When somebody thinks of you from your childhood or from your teen years or from your early adulthood, I don't know what Adjectives would come to mind under your name. But if you have believed on the name of Jesus Christ and you have been saved from your sins, you are no longer defined by what you were. You are not even defined by what you are. You are defined by who you are in. And that is Christ. You're not defined by your sin. You are defined by God's grace. There's a temptation, and it's a lie of Satan, for we who have been saved from lives of terrible sin to want to define ourselves by those sins. Some feel that their sins mean they can't even be saved. 
But that's why Jesus Christ came, is it not? To save sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. That's why He came. He came to save sinners. So how can we say, I'm too much of a sinner to be saved by God? I've done too many poor things for God to love me. He loved us when we were at our worst. And He died for us when we were at our worst. Still others have no... no hang up with the reality that God's grace has overcome your sin unto salvation. You say, I know, I, I'm, I'm saved. I, I've had many sins. God died for those sins. I've been saved. But you can't get over the fact that those sins are still in your past. And so you have been convinced that you can't be used by God because of your past. And in believing this lie, you become the only thing that's standing between you and being used mightily of God. The only thing hindering you from being used by God is your unwillingness to believe that God actually paid it all and that you are now defined by God's grace and not those sins of your past. Are you one in this room who has never received Christ because you've always thought that there's no way God could possibly save a sinner as you? I don't believe we have too many in this small group before me today, but perhaps someone listening on the internet or perhaps one of our young children who has not had the opportunity yet to make a mess of their lives and yet you recognize that that God has redeemed this world from that mess. And even your mess, to whatever degree sin has already been revealed in you, Do you see, though, that there's no sin that's too great? That there's no sin that God says, well, I sent my son to die, but, but not, not quite for that. There's no qualifications to John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever except for... It's not in there, is it? There's no little asterisk. There's no, please see the bottom of the page for, for exclusions. Some exclusions apply. You, you don't see that in the gospel. Are you one in this room who is saved by grace but have refused to plug into the church or refused to um, take those steps in your Christian life? Refuse to take a young believer under wing and disciple him because you say, well... Because of what I've done in my past, I'm just plain not qualified. How, how could I disciple that young believer who, who got saved not long ago? You don't know what I've done. You don't know the kind of sin I've been involved in. It's the old quote is said, I, I don't know what kind of a sinner you are, but I know what kind of a Savior God is. The day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were no longer defined by those sins. Those sins are no longer what is stamped on your life. Your life is defined by Christ. Can you see how the mindset that I can't be used of God because of past failures is wrong? How the whole concept of the grace of God is meant to liberate you from the sins which defined your past 
and root you confidently in the redemption that defines your present? Now, of course, this can be muddied by personal sins in our lives, but the Scriptures tell us in 1 John 1, 1.9 that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us to fellowship, to, to clear up those waters. So that as we go from day to day and folks see us, they see the redeemed living as the redeemed. Can you see how we are all sinners saved by grace? Each redeemed from hellfire by a loving God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you see what a mistake it is to think that God can't use you? To stunt God's ability to use you because of guilt that was born for you on the cross of Calvary. And therefore, you really have no reason to bear it yourself. If you are still bearing the guilt of sin that you have had paid for, and you've accepted the gift, that is a load that you have no right to bear. Because Jesus Christ bore it for you. He has carried that load. You are redeemed. God can still use you. All of this being said, our second point is very important. God's grace is worthy of your deepest efforts. Every believer in this room, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are saved by grace. Regardless of the sins that defined your past, grace defines your present. But some of you are content simply to marinate in that grace. May I put it that way? You're content, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it. You're content to take your get-out-of-hell-free card, put it in your pocket, and then just go along your merry way. To act this way is to take the grace of God that has been given to you, poured out on you at salvation, and to drag it through the mud. You have been redeemed. You have been redeemed from an eternity in hell. It's a long time, folks. You have been redeemed from the power of sin over you. So can we not step up and live our lives in a manner that pleases and glorifies the One who has redeemed us? Do we not have the character to say, if God has redeemed me, if God has bought me out of sin, if He has given me the capacity through His Spirit to unplug myself from my sin nature in order that I might live in a way that pleases Him, can we not have enough character to say, yes, I will serve and follow this One with all of my heart and life. I will give my time and my effort to serving and pleasing Him? Or are we like that prodigal son that Jesus spoke of? who said, God, Father, give me my inheritance. The Father gives him his inheritance and he goes and he spends that inheritance on riotous living and wickedness. Is that what we're doing with the grace of God that's been given to us? God has poured out His grace. We're on our way to heaven and we say, okay, now I'm free. Don't have to worry about that sin stuff anymore. What should I do now? Can you see how unbecoming that is for a believer? Unbecoming to live for himself. Does it seem backward to you that you've been redeemed from an eternity in hell, but you won't give God some time out of your week to fellowship with God's people or to fellowship with Him in personal time, Bible reading, prayer, 
we'll give our time, spend our weekends with our fishing buddies and with our televisions and watching a brown football be thrown to grossly overpaid men. But we won't take a little bit of time to come together to worship God. Does it strike you as unnatural that we, who have been blessed by God with the capacity to understand the spiritual truths of God's Word in a way that the unbelieving world cannot, yet we would know more about our favorite movie stars or sports stars or video games or cars than we do about the revealed Word of God that's based in the Scriptures? Has God's grace really motivated us to walk worthy of it? Is God's grace so precious to us that we will give up some of the pleasures of the world if it would mean more time with God's people? More time to evangelize the lost? More time to worship God? A better knowledge of what God loves and how to live it out in your lives? God's grace was precious enough to Paul that he spent all of his time and effort and labor to become worthy of it. He was beat for it. He was imprisoned for it. He was stoned for it. That was the degree to which Paul measured God's grace in his life. See, Paul was not a special guy. But he had a pretty special attitude. He was a sinner. He had his struggles. He writes in Romans 7, the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. He he, he struggled with his flesh and with sin. He had a thorn in the flesh. Some say it was a sin. Some say it was a physical malady. We don't know. Something in his life that he wanted gone, but God wouldn't take it from him. He had his high points and his low points. He made his misjudgments and his bad calls. But what made him different is he saw the grace of God as so precious that he was willing to set aside his own desires and his own priorities in order that he could walk worthy of the grace that had been given to him. And would to God you and I would do the same. Third and finally, we see that God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. There's no one that's unredeemable and no one that's unusable. If you've been saved by God's grace, then you are a tool to be used by the Master. We've seen that God's grace is worthy of our deepest efforts. Maybe you're a tool, but you're not a sharp tool, or you're, you're, you're not a, you're, you're that hammer that's got that head that you know one of these times you're hitting and it's just going to fly right off. Or that saw that can hardly cut the wood because it's so dull. And you just have never really found being used by God worthy enough to sharpen your own blade or to tighten that handle down a little bit so that you won't fly off the handle. You're a tool. And you know, maybe God's looking one day and He says, who am I going to use to evangelize that person? And He looks down at you and He says, that's a pretty wobbly head on that hammer. And you know, over here, I don't have a hammer. I've I've only got the back end of a screwdriver. But you know, I think the back end of the screwdriver might work better than the hammer because at least that this tool is not going to buckle on me. At least this tool is willing to be used. This tool is what's available right now. That hammer is not not available. It's not in a place where I can use it. Are you willing to put the effort into being usable by God? Third and finally, 
I also do remind you, however, that God's grace is not at the mercy of your efforts. We all have in mind the ways we think God could use us and the ways we think God should use us, right? Paul reminds us in this passage that even our best efforts for God are dependent upon His grace. Sometimes we have things that we want to do for God and God tells us no. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe we aren't ready spiritually. Maybe it's just plain not God's will. And this can lead to discouragement because God's grace is not working out in our lives the way we would expect it to you. Can I, can I be personal for a moment? Your pastor studies a lot. I determined when the Lord called me to ministry that I was going to take the intellectual ability that he had given to me and he was going to, I, I was going to use it. I was going to make something of it. Now, I did not expect when I was called to the ministry and I got a 4.0 in seminary that I would be using all of that knowledge to teach 25-odd people in, in a small little town in Buffalo. The temptation is to say, God, I've put all this preparation in. Why aren't you using me? That's what I want to say. Why, why, why is it only this, this small group of people, some of whom look at me cross-eyed when I try to, to, to get up to that level of, of uh, what I've studied and the depth? and the... God, why? But see, God's grace isn't at the mercy of my efforts. I don't know why God called an intellectual academic to Buffalo, Minnesota to start a Baptist church. I don't know. I, I know that my... my, my I, I know what I feel, but I, 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 don't see all of, I don't see all of what God is doing or what He's going to do or what He has done or why He wants me here. Maybe it's because of my spiritual state. I need to grow. Maybe it's because God had a group of people who were praying for, for something and, and, I, and I, I became that answer. Maybe it's, maybe it's a mix of all of it. But what I do know is that God's grace has brought me to where I am and that His grace is not at the mercy of my efforts. I know that I take who I am and what I am and I live it out to the best of my ability and I study because that's what God has made me to do, to study and to teach. And I work and I do everything I can to be everything I can for His ministry and I become all things to all men as God has called me to be and then I just wait to see what God's going to do with me. And the more usable I am, the more He'll be able to use me. And it's the same with you. God, I'm putting in the time. I'm learning about how to evangelize the lost. I'm trying to evangelize the lost. I'm learning about the Word of God so that I can get into Bible studies with my friends and my coworkers and my neighbors and I can help them understand more about the Word of God. I'm trying to raise my kids as under the Lord. I've studied. I've worked hard. I don't have all the answers, but I'm, I'm working hard. And, and, and yet, as, as, I, as I pour in the work, it seems as though opportunities aren't arising. It seems as though nothing's happening. It seems as though all of my effort is falling on deaf ears. Um, Isaiah 55. It's God's prerogative how He chooses to use us, not our own. Isaiah 55, God tells us in verses 8 and 9 this. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know what God is doing, and that's probably a good thing. I don't know what God has planned for me, and that's probably a good thing. God's way is not my way, and that's definitely a good thing. Because if, if it had been done my way, my life would have already been pretty messed up. We may not understand why God has placed us where we are. When it seems our talents or our skills might be better suited to something else. But what we can trust is wherever God's grace leads us, this is where we can best be used of Him. We serve a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. So how about you today? Have you been living as a hostage to your guilt or your former sin? Do you need to allow God's grace to be the defining feature in your life? Do you need to get over the fact that yes, you have done wrong and begin to recognize that yes, God can use you and see yourself as a usable tool? Or... Maybe you do know that you're a tool, but you're just content to not be a very good tool. (laughs) You know, if God were to drop something in your lap, you'd take it and run with it. But you're not going to go out of your way. You're not going to sharpen your understanding of the Word of God. You're not going to, you're not going to pursue it with all your heart. You, 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 you're, you're content just to be that Christian who's just kind of coasting. When the right time and the right circumstances comes, yeah, okay, God, you can use me. Or are you making those efforts? Are you, are you allowing yourself, are you determining that you will be as best you can through the grace of God, worthy of the grace that He's given you? And are you content to serve God in the manner that His grace has called you unto? Or are you discontent? Are you afraid that God is not being a good steward of your efforts? Have you lost sight of the fact that it's God's grace that has made you what you are and given you what you are and placed you where you are and, and so you're just going to put your head up, see what needs to be done and do it? Or are you so busy thinking God's not using me in the way that He ought to? Look at all the gifts and talents and the abilities that He has uh, at His disposal or look at how uh, that, that, that you, you're lost to where you are right now because you're so busy worrying about where you aren't. Let's allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to speak to our hearts today. I don't know how the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to you, what He's placed His thumb on in your life. I know He's spoken to me. He has been all week. Let's be humble. Humble enough to respond to the Word of God so that we can be, through His grace, the best tool we can be for Him. Let's pray.